This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment. The conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. There have been countless books, dialogues, and programs hoping to address the disenchantments of our time and the need for spiritual guidance. The search generally ends in two camps, the all-encompassing God camp represented by Greek and Abrahamic philosophy and religion, or the atheist. What we got is what we see, live your life fully. But now, Tony Cronman, in his new and seventh book, After Disbelief, on enchantment, disappointment, eternity, and joy offers us an intriguing third way of thinking of God. Tony's exploration is grounded in his credentials of a PhD in philosophy, being a sterling professor of law at Yale Law School and its former dean. But these credentials are informed by the more fundamental aspects of his personality that of a joyous excavator of life, always learning, studying, teaching, and indulging in the fullness of nature and the mind. I am lucky to call him a friend and over almost three decades have enjoyed exquisite meals he has made with conversations that have left me feeling exhilarated. Now he takes on no less a topic than God, eternity, and the divine. Fasten your seatbelt and open your mind. We have much to learn. My dear Professor Cronman, welcome to Just the Right Book. <laughs> Thank you, my, my dear friend. What a, what a warm and gracious introduction. I'm grateful for that. And uh, the, the friendship, as you know, Roxanne, is entirely reciprocal. And uh, every hour that we've spent together has been a joy for me. Oh, thanks, Tony. So one might assume from this book that you grew up steeped in religious dogma. Uh, Yet your previous book, Confessions of a Pagan, suggests otherwise. So tell us about your parents' relationship with, with God and religion. Yes. Well, my parents were dogmatists of a kind, but they were dogmatically anti-dogmatic. They were dogmatically anti-religion. Both of them had had very strong, although radically different, religious uh, upbringings. My father was raised in an Orthodox Jewish family on the Lower East Side of New York. And um, my, my mother, in an evangelical Baptist home surrounded by true believers of the old stock uh, American variety. They both turned against religion later in their lives. I would say my father simply grew disinterested in it. Um, he, he, He lost whatever curiosity he may have had about religion at an earlier point in his life and just just drifted away from it. My mother turned against religion with a fierce hatred of everything that, in her mind, religion represented and stood for, which was bigotry, small-mindedness, a lack of tolerance, piety of an irrational and intellectually stultifying kind. And so I grew up in a home in which uh, religion was treated either with indifference or active contempt. And as I uh, grew up and listened to my parents talk about God and why why God isn't such a good idea, I, I began to become curious about the nature of this dangerous proposition. What is God? Who is God? What does it What do people mean when they refer to God? And what can possibly explain the fact that so many millions of people are carried away by a form of insanity, uh, of religious insanity, as my parents characterized it? So 
as I grew up, uh, went to school, began to explore these questions on my own, I was determined to get to the bottom of the matter myself and to figure out whether, in fact, there's anything to the idea or not. So, and let's let's just uh, add two elements that I always find fascinating is the little tidbit you left out about your dad is he, he went to rabbinic school and was briefly a rabbi before he turned into an L.A. screenwriter. So his learning was more formal, yet it was your mother who was early on, you, you said you were like 10 and 11, exploring with you whether existentialism or other philosophies might provide some insight. So I found that ironic. You would have thought your father was having the philosophical conversations, but it was your mother. Yes, exactly. My, My father on paper was far and away the better educated of my parents. He'd been to the Hebrew Union College, uh, uh, been trained as a rabbi. He took a degree at the University of Cincinnati at the same time, so he had a secular as well as a rabbinic education. He studied philosophy and history and literature. He was a he was a, a well-read, well-educated man. My mother graduated from high school, and that was the end of her formal education. Mm-hmm. But my father didn't have what I would call a philosophic temperament or a philosophic passion. Mm -hmm. Of course, he was interested in lots of different things, but not with the peculiar intensity that philosophers tend to be interested in them. My mother had a philosophical soul. She was the philosopher in the family. And uh, if there is such a thing as a a philosophic gene, I inherited it from her and not from him. And very early on in my life, she and I would would sit and talk uh, aimlessly and endlessly about questions that later in my life I came to recognize were philosophical or metaphysical or theological questions of the of the deepest uh, of the deepest kind. So I owe my curiosity about these things to my mother really more than I do to my father. And, and, you know, the other thing that I found interesting, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a Ph.D. in philosophy. But I would assume as you were going down this path, and I know from conversations we've had over the years, this has been progressive. But I would assume your academic colleagues would more closely align with your mother's rationalist view of humanism. Yes, uh, for sure. Um, I, I sometimes joke, but it's, it's, it's a joke that has more than a kernel of truth, Roxanne, that my colleagues at the Yale Law School and in the academic world more broadly fall into two camps. One is very large and the other quite small by comparison. The large camp consists of all the disbelievers, those who look on religion religion as nothing but a a bundle of superstitious nonsense and regard the word God as a curse word that shouldn't be used in polite company. The much smaller group are uh, those I would characterize as the stalwart true believers, by which I mean the few uh, Christians, Jews, a few Muslims, who hold to their ancestral faiths Mm. with a conviction and belief, and for whom the idea of God is still a living presence in their lives. I don't fall in either of those two camps, Mm -hmm. either the big one or the little one. Unlike my thoroughly secularized colleagues who don't believe in God at all and aren't interested in pursuing the question of whether God exists and what that might mean. I'm passionately curious about that subject and count myself a religious person 
in a very specific and from many people's point of view, rather eccentric sense. I mm-hmm. believe in God, but a God of a special kind that you'll have to, readers will have to read this book <laughs> to discover. Um, uh, so I dissociate myself from the skeptical naysayers, uh, mm-hmm. the rationalist secularists. But, but I also can't get with, I've never been able to get with any of the traditional religious programs. Mm-hmm. I don't subscribe to an orthodoxy of any form at all. I've never been able to see myself as a member of a church community. Uh, I just don't believe in the God to whom Christians and Jews and Muslims all pray in one uh, form or another. That God, to, to my mind, is not a rationally defensible God. And I have demanded of myself that I find a God, some would say invent a God, mm-hmm. that passes the test of rational review, of rational inspection, that stands up to critical inquiry and survives even the most strenuous examination from a severely rational point of view. So so we're going to get to how you what, what that looks like in your view, but you write in the book that in the past, the belief that there is an eternal order that we humans are connected to was so well supported by a vast scaffolding of institutions, habits, and ideas that no one thought it could be challenged. Yet today, we find ourselves in a period that you call disbelief. So what did this shift look like and what do you think has contributed to that shift? Because it's palpable. You know, we we see people searching for something else, but first they abandoned the belief that had been around for ages. Yes, yes. Um, it, it is perhaps the most remarkable thing that has happened to human beings in the very long course of their uh, life on earth Mm -hmm. until relatively recently in historical terms, there has never been a human community in which the confident belief in an order of timeless, um, values, truths, beings, realities. It's been characterized in different ways at different times in which a belief in the existence of an eternal order immune to the vicissitudes of time wasn't so securely anchored that it just went without saying. Of course, it it took different forms at different times, It was expressed in different ways, but always there was the belief that against the, um, that as as the background to human life with all of its uh, suffering and impermanence, there was a lasting order of values that you could count on being there forever and ever and ever. And in the last couple of hundred years, that belief in an eternal order of realities and values, that has attenuated and in some parts of the world come close to disappearing. You say, well, how did this happen? What caused it? The the, uh, libraries of books have been written in response to that question. It is the cumulative effect, I would say, Roxanne, of a thousand different forces, all exerting pressure from different directions, some intellectual, some economic, 
others political, social, cultural, but all pushing in the same direction toward the disenchantment of the world, by which I mean the loss of a confident sense that there is a backstop of eternal uh, values and realities to what happens to us, to Mm -hmm. we human beings in the flow of time. And I don't think that it is possible for human beings to live meaningfully or perhaps even intelligibly without some connection to an eternal order of some kind or other. The connection to eternity must be preserved. If if it's been lost, it has to be restored. If it's misunderstood, we need to understand it more clearly because without it, human life is nothing ultimately but a succession of events all linked together in a blind and pointless array of happenings that come and go and in the end mean absolutely nothing at all. You know, Tony, when when I was reading the reading the book, I don't think um, I've necessarily thought about the human need for a sense of the eternal. Um, And you explore it from the from the viewpoint of of uh, love. You explore it from the viewpoint of of death and. I remember when one of the books I've loved that was written years ago is a book called Denial of Death. And it it too talks a little bit about by accepting death, you actually begin in a philosophical way accepting the notion of the eternal. But what is it what is it about this concept that is so critical to human nature. What is it that it does? Do you do you believe, Tony, for a human as they go from one day to the next? Well, let's let's start with with death. <laughs> that's that's always a good place to begin. Yeah. Uh, it, it, if, if you asked, what is the most striking fact about human beings? The, the one that most emphatically sets them apart from all other animals on earth. One good answer, I think, would be the knowledge of their mortality. Mm-hmm. Other animals die just as we do, but we know we will. And uh, um, uh, Alexander Pope, the 18th century English poet, called it a useless bit of knowledge the knowledge of our of our mortality, because there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, knowing it doesn't change the fact. It doesn't alter our circumstances. But if you just pause for a moment and say, what does this knowledge involve? What does it reveal about us? Well, one thing it reveals is that we are able to imagine the brief span of time that our lives occupy against a much longer span of time. We're able to see with our mind's eye the small number of years that uh, uh, we occupy against a, a background of cosmic time, which was there before we arrived and will continue after we're gone. And in fact, uh, our, 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 our imaginative powers are so vast in this respect that we can conceive the idea of time without end. We don't live on forever, but we're perfectly able to imagine such a thing as an endless, everlasting temporal series, series of, 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 of events. And with that thought, we're led inevitably, I think, to another, which is, does anything endure in this endless series of events? 
is there anything which is immune to its wasting powers? And the answer is yes, of course, there are some things that we know are not subject to destruction in time. For example, the truths of mathematics. These are not true one day and false the next. They don't spring into being and disappear. The Pythagorean theorem is true always and forever. It is, as we say, eternally true. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's possible, only possible, for an animal that is aware of its own mortality because it is able to take in the whole of time with its imagination, with its mind's eye, it is only possible for an animal of that kind to invent or discover something like mathematics or or science, the natural science of nature. And similarly, I talk quite a bit about science in the book, but I also, as you mentioned, I talk about love because I wanted to pick an example that was as far removed from the the cold precincts of scientific inquiry as I could imagine. And, And personal love seemed to me to be a good example of that. Um, I believe that uh, our, our, our love of the people that we love most deeply is inexhaustible because there is always more to be discovered and cherished about them. And we would need more time than our short lives allow in order to get to the bottom of the matter, in order to love as well and as completely as we long to. And in fact, we would need an endless time to do that, to love one other person uh, as adequately as in our moments of, 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 of thoughtfulness and reflection, we see that we wish to love them to love one other person as well as we wish to, we would have to have an eternity in which to pursue uh, the the campaign, if I can use it inaptly, (laughs) a military metaphor. And, you know, people who have been in love for a lifetime uh, coming... To, to, to the end, are filled, I think, with a sense of wonder and joy and wistfulness at the fact that they've gotten as far along as they have, but, but still have room to grow, mm-hmm. uh, have uh, discoveries to make, and a fresh field of love to explore. And that open-endedness, for me, is connected in a very deep way to the fact that we human beings are able to pursue goals that even though our lives are limited in time, the goals themselves are not confined by time, mm. but, uh, but invite and indeed require an infinite eternal field in which to play out and be pursued. So, Tony, let me explore it this way. So if you think of Plato, Aristotle, the religions of Christianity, Judaism, God is unique and God is judging, has some judgment about our behavior and it's different in each of those religions, but the reward or punishment for our life comes after. Yes and no. Let me let me 
uh, amend what you've just said Good. in the in the following way. Um, the, the great philosophers of pagan antiquity, of pre-Christian antiquity, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, it's a very long list. They all believed in God. They used the word. They had something in mind when they did. And of course, their Abrahamic successors, the, the Jews first and then Christians and Muslims, who came after, used the idea of God too, and put it at the very center of their picture of the, of the, of the world. They had radically different conceptions, the pagans on the one hand, and the Abrahamists on the other, of what that word God means. Christians, Jews, and Muslims have in mind a God more or less of the sort you just described. God is a person with the power to judge, uh, who, who meets out punishments and rewards. These come to us in the next life, in the next world, depending on how we've conducted ourselves in this one. That picture is so familiar to us, Roxanne, that we tend to associate it with the idea of God in general. It has so, seeped so deeply into our cultural experience that when you hear the word, that picture immediately comes to mind. But that's not at all the picture that the Greeks and Romans had before them when they used the concept and talked about, about God. Aristotle, to just pick one, he's my, my favorite among all the pagan uh, thinkers, um, it, it had no idea of a creator apart from the world who brings the world into being and then sits in judgment of it. The whole Abrahamic scheme was completely foreign to his way of thinking. Mm. For Aristotle, God was just the eternity of the world itself, uh, the, the everlasting uh, inextinguishable, not a being, not 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 a not a being, it, not a personal being for sure. Right. Not not a not. Let's say not a being. I think that's correct. Not a not a being. So, one question is, what do these otherwise very different ideas of God, the pagan idea, as exemplified by Aristotle, for example, on the one hand, and the Abrahamic idea as exemplified by Augustine and Maimonides and Avicenna in the Muslim tradition and countless other writers. What do these otherwise very different ideas of God have in common? And here's my very short answer to that extremely difficult question. For all of them, God is the word one uses to describe a reality that is eternal, that is to say, unchanging, not in time, but mm -hmm. timeless, and necessary, by which I mean not accidental, contingent, variable. God is a reality. This is the way I put it in the book. Deliberate. A God, deliberate. Deliberate and, 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 and inescapable, unavoidable. Mm -hmm. a, a, a reality that cannot not be. It must exist. It has to exist. Uh, you and I might not exist. At least this is how we ordinarily think about things. Um, your parents might have had other things to to do the night that you were conceived, and you not have come come into being. Uh, uh, and the same with me. So we're used to thinking of our lives as accidental, contingent. You can imagine the world without them. God, by contrast, is the name we give to that order or dimension of reality that is eternal and necessary not accidental, 
not contingent as you and I are, but uh, but but uh, but whose whose non-existence is unthinkable. Aristotle believed that. Plato believed that. Cicero believed it. Augustine believed it. So did Aquinas and Maimonides. They would all have signed on to that proposition, as would Spinoza, my very favorite philosopher in the whole of the Western tradition, who put paganism and Abrahamism together in an absolutely unique and startling uh, blend that has, for many years, had enormous appeal for me. But that's another that's another another story. We could have a whole podcast. I think we once had a dinner when when you were steeped in rereading Spinoza. I think we had one, if not two dinners. Because yes. uh, then it got yes. me, it got me reading. Yeah. I remember when I was a student at Williams College taking my first philosophy class, and Spinoza was on the reading list, and I found him impenetrably difficult. Mm. But but I had the 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 sense it was really Roxanne more a visceral feeling than anything yeah. else. I had the sense when I was reading these impossible pages that this guy's on to something. You know, there's something really, really important here. And he possibly, this is the truth, possibly. So I'm going to have to bookmark it, as we would now say. I have to bookmark it and come back to it when I have the time and I, and I'm a, and I know a little more philosophy. And I bookmarked it for about 40 years. And then came back to it and opened it up again. And uh, that was my moment, like uh, St. Augustine's moment in the garden, as he tells the story in his confessions, when he's trying to decide what he believes. Is he a, is he a pagan? Is he a Manichaean? Is he a Christian? And he hears a little boy uh, uh, chanting from the other side of the wall of his garden, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. <laughs> and he happens to have a copy of the New Testament at hand. So he picks it up and it falls open to Paul's letter to the Romans. And he reads a passage and he is struck and converted and knows that he is in his innermost heart of hearts a Christian. So I had an experience like that when I opened Spinoza again in later life. And it was my born-again pagan conversion moment, I suppose you could describe it as that. So, Tony, when you, and we're going to leave them hanging on this, but I want to take a little bit of time because I think you've done a great job sort of holding our hand um, through the conversation that, you know, you talk about that humanism often does not require or even encompass the notion of a God, but you believe, as you've talked about, we need this idea of God to account for what you call the assumption that the world is both inherently and infinitely divine. Yes. And yes. so your God, we'll call we'll call her your God for now. How how does it fit into this melding of the rational and the uh divine that we think of for or our classic notion of organized religious notions of God. Good. Okay. Um, let me just say a few things in response to that, Roxanne. It's, a, it's an essential question. It's the question to which the whole book really is addressed and is mm -hmm. meant to be an, an answer. And what I will say in response isn't much more than a, a tease, I suppose. Hopefully it will, it will tease some of those viewing uh, the, the podcast to buy the book and see what I have to say about it. But here's what I would say. 
when I wrote Confessions of a Born Again Pagan now, what, uh, six, seven years ago, I started with the history of philosophy and questions of theology. And then I worked my way down from those abstract heights to a more concrete discussion of the human condition and what those theological beliefs meant for our understanding of human life and the human situation. In this much, much, much shorter book, After Disbelief, I begin at the other end. I start with the human condition and offer some reflections about it. And then on the basis of those reflections, work my way back up to some conclusions of a theological kind. And what I say about the human condition uh, boiled down to its simplest terms is this, that we human beings by our nature find ourselves compelled to ask questions and to pursue goals which we can never answer and never reach. Um, we are in the, the inescapable habit, you might say, of setting tasks for ourselves that cannot be fulfilled. And so we are doomed to disappointment by our own human nature. Um, there are lots of trivial disappointments in life. I want to go fishing, but, uh, but, uh, but the weather uh, storms and I can't go, it's a disappointment. But it might have been otherwise. But some disappointments are inescapable. I want to know everything there is to know about the world. Well, I'm, not, I'm never going to do that either in my lifetime, and human beings will never do it in an endless succession of lifetimes. So disappointment is built into the fabric of our humanity. That's one observation. The second is, despite the fact of this constitutional disappointment that we visit on ourselves by setting tasks that we can never fulfill, despite that, we are able, and we know that we are able, to make modest progress toward the achievement of those goals. We can get a little further along to understanding the world, to loving other people, to building a just society, even though at the end of the day, the gap between what we have achieved and what we aspire to achieve will be as infinitely large as it was at the start. So, I say that's what human life is like, setting goals that you can't ever reach, and yet, despite that, being able to make some incremental progress toward them. And then I ask the question, what must the world be like for, for, their, for that experience, uh, the one I've just described, of setting impossible goals and yet making progress toward them? For that experience to be possible at all, what do we have to assume about the nature and organization of the world in order to explain the possibility of the human condition? And the answer I give, and here I, I won't elaborate further because it, uh, uh, it would take more than the few minutes we have left, and it's what the book is really about. My answer is the only conceivable way the world can be for that human experience to be possible at all is that the world must be in itself eternal and divine. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and if my reader it comes along with me uh, to that point in the argument, he or she will find themselves in touch again with a sense of the eternal or everlasting that has been steadily erased from our world 
over the last two centuries through the process of disenchantment that we were speaking of before. Mm, Tony, thank you for that explanation. You know, for uh, those uh, listening uh, to the podcast, you know, the thing that I was struck by reading the book, well, it's got a couple of things in in favor of my enthusiasm for why people should read it. One is I barely know anybody who can construct a sentence the way you do. I mean, even if it were, even if I didn't understand one word, I would be happy for the language, uh, you know, and just the way you put together a sentence, the, the it's just always a marvel to me, Tony, always a marvel. But the other You know, I think you've used the word that the book is for the spiritually aware, but I think it's also for the spiritually curious, because the concept that we haven't talked about, that you talk about in the book, is at the end of this journey of thinking about the eternal or God differently, is a deep notion of joy. And we haven't talked about that. And, you know, people will be, you know, my response to the book is I want to go back and try to read Spinoza. I want to go back and try to understand more and then go back and read the book again. But I think the reward for me and for a reader is a more expansive, joyful way of thinking about what our existing life can be. Yes. Well, thank you. Thank you for all of that, Roxanne. Yes, joy is a central term and concept in the book and in my thinking generally. I I distinguish between joy and contentment. Mm -hmm. Contentment is the experience of reaching a goal that you've set for yourself and coming to rest. Uh, You set out to do something, to achieve something, and you succeed. And in succeeding, you feel completion, attainment, (laughs) contentment. You feel really now you've you've, you've done what you meant to do. If it is true that, that we are condemned to a kind of restless searching after uh, knowledge uh, and uh, and uh, and affection that we can never fully attain. Then, for us, contentment is out of the picture. We we are by nature discontented beings. We cannot help but be discontented. And if we imagine ourselves contented in heaven after this life or wherever then we imagine ourselves no longer in the human condition because the human condition is one of built-in discontentment. So if contentment isn't in the running anymore, what is? The experience of moving from one level of knowledge or affection or love to a higher one. And that experience of making progress, that is joyful. Mm. Of course, as as soon as you reach your new plateau, to put it very crudely, uh, 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 you will see that there is yet more work to be done in knowing and loving, and you will want to press on, and after having caught your breath, you'll take another step forward. And if you are lucky, you will experience the joy of upward movement again. So joy is, in a way, exhausted in the progress of motion, movement from one stage to a higher one. That's the bad news. The good news is there is always more joy to be had because the stages ahead of you are endless in number. And you can continue to climb through them. 
forever and ever and ever until you finally run out of time and out of gas. But so long as you live, joy is the prospect that lies before you. And it is the compensation. Mm. It's the only compensation, really, for the built-in disappointment that comes with the human condition. So this is why I find our dinner conversations <laughs> exhilarating. <laughs> and, you know, I want to, uh, I I will close by thanking you. But first, I have to take a sharp right turn. Um, I could not leave this conversation and and not take advantage of your law brain uh, at this fractious time at the Supreme Court. So I will have to ask you a couple of, I have a couple of specific questions, which I don't think we'll have time for, but let's, let's address a general question. Um, it be, I know you taught Roe v. Wade uh, this semester or last semester at the law school, but do you believe that these recent controversial decisions that deal with abortion, you know, the most profound and fundamental issues like abortion, separation of church and state and guns reflect a politicalization of the court or a reasonable, if conservative, interpretation of the Constitution? And pair that, Tony, with this question. Or does this this new trend uh, represent a void being filled by the judicial branch to compensate for the lack of legislative muscle. Now, I know those are big questions, uh, but huge, I, I'm sure our questions. audience yep. are interested in your perspective. Yeah. Well, here are just a couple of, of thoughts quickly in response. The Supreme Court is and always has been a political institution. It, it is part of our system of government. It doesn't stand above government. It occupies a position within our constitutional order, and um, it, it, it is it has it has from the day the first justices began sitting in the last years of the 18th century. It has been at risk of losing uh, the uh, the authority and the stature it enjoys on account of its independence and judiciousness, if I can use the word, by being swallowed up into politics of the in the more ordinary sense. It has always been at risk of being politicized, and the great challenge that the justices have faced from the beginning, it has been to preserve the authority of the institution and of the judiciary more, more generally, um, while uh, acknowledging that the court is an actor in a political drama mm-hmm. and not a, uh, an, an institution hovering up in the sky somewhere above it. The Dobbs case, the new the Mississippi case, the new abortion uh, decision represents, I think, a serious threat, a serious hemorrhaging of authority mm. um, uh, on the part of the Supreme Court. And I say this for the following reason. One of the issues in that case, one of the central issues, was the question of fidelity to precedent. Roe against Wade was decided now almost 50 years ago. Uh, If we're a law-abiding country and the Supreme Court is is an institution that follows the law, 
including its own earlier decisions, doesn't that mean that it ought to follow Roe and to endorse the regime that Roe put in place? Doesn't precedent and fidelity to law require that? And Justice Alito's opinion is in large part addressed to that question, and he attempts to show at great length why Roe is not a precedent worth uh, preserving, why it itself did not rest on solid precedent, why the attempt to uh, rescue and bolster it in the name of precedent has been ineffective. And uh, uh, and uh, I read the opinion very carefully, and I uh, and I hear Justice Alito say all of those things. But what is most glaringly obvious to me is the narrowness and the the presumptuousness and mean spiritedness with which he reviews the relevant precedents and interprets them in the light of a very cramped, crabbed, narrow, ungenerous, and and I would say un-American ideology. Um, And so on the one hand, he is invoking precedent. That's the touchstone of judicial legitimacy, authority. And and yet, at the same time, disregarding Hmm. precedent by simply, as Justice Breyer points out in his dissent, not paying any attention at all to the most relevant cases that Roe itself relied on. I think Roe was a very poorly constructed uh, decision, Uh, not well thought through, not well argued. trimester plan, which the court imposed on the the country as a matter of constitutional law, was not well designed, was not well thought through. The idea of viability as the essential test for determining when a woman's right to control uh, her own body uh, ends and the right to life of the fetus inside of her Uh, takes precedent. The viability test has never been convincing to me. But it's one thing to say that that Roe in its argument was unconvincing and needs to be revisited and reconceived. It's one thing to say that. It's something else to say. So something far more radical and deeply, I think, destructive to say there is no basis in the Constitution and in constitutional precedent for recognizing that a woman has a constitutionally protected right, right to the control of her body. Maybe not under point. that provision, but under other elements of the Constitution. Yes, and I think even under that provision, too. Uh, mm-hmm. the, 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 the difficult question is, uh, at what point does that constitutionally protected right give way or must it give way to the le- legitimate interest the state has in protecting the life of the unborn child? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and defenders of, of abortion and opponents of abortion agree for the most part, except for a few really crazy people at either extreme, agree that at some point in the course of a pregnancy, you reach a tipping point. And uh, the right to uh, choose gives way to the right to life. Mm -hmm. And and that's a difficult question, what that tipping point should be. And maybe there should be, I, I myself think there should be some reasonable latitude given to the states to decide where exactly to draw that line in the uh, in the course of the pregnancy but that's one thing and it's something as i say very different and much more radical to write a woman's right to uh, control her own body out of the whole regime of constitutional protection that roe acknowledged mm-hmm. and enshrined 
Um, in any case, I think, you know, a more conservative approach in the, in the sense, in the, in the sense of kind of a traditional conservatism might have been the one that Justice Roberts Roberts wanted proposes in his concurring opinion that it was enough to uphold the Mississippi statute, which set the uh, the outer limits of decision at fourteen or fifteen weeks. Right, fifteen, I think. Fifteen weeks enough to say that's okay. That doesn't offend the Constitution without reaching the more fundamental question of whether a woman has a constitutionally protected right at all to an abortion up to any point in the course of her pregnancy. No need to take that second radical step, which Alito, Justice Alito, took in his opinion with the support of five of his fellow justices on the bench. I think it was a terrible decision, just in terms of judicial craftsmanship. Mm -hmm. um, what the result will be remains to be seen. Um, it, it may end up uh, provoking a reconfiguration of the political landscape in America in ways that are not altogether bad. Mm -hmm. um, we, we'll have to see. But uh, the world has been dramatically unsettled. And when you take that decision in company with the two religion cases, yeah. the decision on guns, the gutting of the EPA climate protection order, this amounts to an altogether new court with a new agenda. And when I teach constitutional law in the fall term, the question I will be most in interested in exploring with my students is the question of what what is the the uh, the animating uh, principle or goal of this new and radically conservative court mm -hmm. that's emerged in the last six weeks with this flurry of opinions so tony this is why you nancy kevin and i have very long dinners <laughs> Sadly, the podcast, which our dinners don't, has a limit. Um, and I'm going to have to have you come back on and we'll just talk about whatever you want to talk about. But we, what we have been legally obliged to discuss is we have been talking with Tony Cronman, uh, the author of After Disbelief on Disenchantment, Disappointment, eternity, and joy. So, Tony, many, many thanks for this conversation. I know, uh, I, I, as always, I'm sure you will have provoked other conversations that people will have. People will read the book and probably write to both of us uh, with more questions. But thank you for taking the time, and thank you so much for the book. Thank you, Roxanne, for the, for the invitation. Uh, and for years and years and years of warm friendship and uh, in, in encouragement and uh, just comradeship and all the important things in life. It means the world to me. Just the Right Book is not just a podcast. JustTheRightBook.com is a highly personalized book subscription service. It's good for readers of all ages. We have decades and decades of bookselling experience at R.J. Julia's, and they're the ones who are selecting these books. Here's what happens. We get tons and tons of letters. We've been around for over 10 years, and the letters always are a version of this. I can't believe you picked out this book. I would have never picked it out, and guess what? It was just the right book. So visit justtherightbook.com for details and begin your subscription today. Of course, we have a promo code for you. So if you go to justtherightbook.com, use the promo code podcast, and you will get 15% off on your subscription at justtherightbook.com. You are listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Gino Cardone at Pleasant Podcast. 
The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I am Roxanne Cody. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have any comments, observations, suggestions, we'd love to hear from you. You can email me at justtherightbook at rjjulia.com.